You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll talk with a climate activist about the mega fires raging across the American West and how we should put them in context. If you look at the amount of damage going on up and down the West Coast of the United States, once you get through the tragedy of it, I'm not trying to make light of the human level tragedy. It's a huge financial blow to the insurance industry year after year of that same thing happening. How many times have you heard unprecedented? It's beginning to sink in. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. Tens of thousands of people are facing evacuation and worse as fires continue to blaze across the western United States. At least seven people have reportedly been killed by the fires. Everything feels apocalyptic. But climate activists and scientists are already warning that it's only likely to get worse, or at least even more unpredictable, without action. I talked about that notion and how we should be thinking and talking about climate change with Laura Nish, executive director of 350 Bay Area, a climate advocacy group. She's also written about the industries that are driving climate change and what action has to be taken. So there's something like two dozen fires burning across the state right now, and that's just the latest round after an August fire siege sparked by lightning storms. According to Cal Fire, California has seen a nearly 2,000% increase in the acres burned compared to this time last year. And the Bay Area woke up to basically darkened skies. There's this sense that things are getting continually worse. And you've addressed that notion. You wrote, today's horror show will look like the good old days if we don't act now with urgency to address the climate crisis. That's pretty jarring. Can you say a little bit more about that? It is jarring. I think that the, the thing that people really need to deeply understand is that despite all of the confusion that um, other interests throw at all of the modeling that's happened with climate scientists, this is pretty much dead on what the models convene on. You know, Mm. this is completely predicted. And the thing thing to take uh, to be aware of is that it does seem to be happening rather faster than was predicted. So yes, this is what our future looks like. This is what is was it was predicted, and we can see the impact of it. And we got a peek at this uh, from what was happening in Australia, not that long ago. I mean, there was a while there where it seemed like all of Australia was on fire, and now, unfortunately, we on the west coast of the United States can commiserate because if you look at these maps, you can see the extent of, to which the fires are burning from the southern boundary to the northern boundary of the western United States. And it's not just that it's that this was predictable and this is what we saw coming and this is the future. The future looks like it's going to be worse. Like every time we think it's gotten so much worse than before, it's going to get even worse. Yes, we're feeling the impacts now of about a degree warming, and that's in Celsius. And the Paris Agreement is, you know, everybody got together and said, oh, let's, let's try to keep the warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. 
But we have just gotten to the point where we as human beings have not evolved in this kind of a high CO2 environment with all of the impacts. We have more CO2 in the more warming gases in the atmosphere than we have during, you know, basically our entire evolution. So this is a giant chemistry experiment that uh, we're living through. Right now to be in California, it does feel apocalyptic. Uh, we have been very temperate in the way that we talk about the, the kinds of impacts and the kind of an emergency that we're in because we don't want to freak people out. But we, we need to start freaking people out. Like it is time to act. We, are, we still have a very narrow pathway to really get on top of this and bring the impacts down. But we are well on the way to one and a half degrees Celsius. We, we may, the things that we are doing now, unless we turn this 180 degrees, we've already baked in that amount of warming, at least. So, um, and we're feeling today, we're feeling the impacts of one degree warming. So it turns out where, you know, there's a lot of right wing messaging that says, oh, you're talking about, you know, 415 parts per million. That's nothing. It's a tiny little amount. Parts per million of carbon dioxide? Carbon, yeah, sorry, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So we, uh, 350 Bay Area, the the name 350 comes from 350.org, the uh, international organization that focuses on climate change. 350 Bay Area is a local group, regional, that focuses on getting uh, policies passed to reduce uh, fossil fuel pollution. 350 was at some point pulled out of a hat as being the upper limit to a safe climate. And uh, two things have happened. One, we've blown past that. If you just look at CO2 in the atmosphere, then we are at about 415 approximately. And it moves around. It it fluctuates during the year. But if you look at all of the the CO2 equivalents, that's what the measure is called, including the impacts of methane in the atmosphere, we're close to 500. So we're just in uncharted territory. It significantly caused warming to happen. And when you introduce that amount of additional energy into the system, it just causes all sorts of chaos. So it doesn't mean that every place is going to be equally warmer. It means that there's chaos in the system and the jet streams get messed up and the oceans warm and kill the re- you know, Like it's a huge, complicated uh, earth system, as your mm-hmm. listeners probably know. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you bring up this point of time being it being time to freak people out um, and messaging, because as the world literally burns, there is still somehow debate about climate change. I mean, you were on a news program back in 2018 after the campfire had just killed more than 80 people. And the setup there was a conversation between you and an ecologist who said nothing supports a link between climate change and these fires. I've been part of and I've heard lots of conversations about how these fires are the new normal or the new abnormal. And, you know, we keep surpassing our own fears of how bad it could get. And yet people are still resistant to the notion that it's here. The climate crisis is upon us now. How should we be talking about climate change right now when these crises put it right in front of us? Well, my favorite answer to that question, and not to be flip, is we should all be talking about it all the time. It doesn't really matter how you talk about it. It's. I think the most important thing is to be genuine about what your concerns are. So when we talk to people, there's a couple of things. You aren't going to convince a climate denier, you know, somebody who's really made it their life's work to cherry pick the data and pull it apart and uh, convince themselves and as many other people as they can that this is not happening. 
But if you look at the uh, Yale Climate Project for Communications, they it shows clearly that people are no longer unconvinced. You know, we say all the time in, in you know, the, the climate change activists are like, all of the scientists pretty much agree that this is what's happening. You know, the climate scientists, the people who study this and uh, know what they're talking about and understand how energy moves through the Earth's systems. There's really no, there is absolutely no reputable published study that has any standing, you know, that it's not happening and that it's not severe. So I think that arguing about what the scientists believe is now we're done. You know, it's mm -hmm. pretty much 100%. Mm -hmm. So I think that when we tell our genuine stories about what our concerns are, not just for our children and grandchildren, but for ourselves, then we can uh, get people to move this up in their priorities when they're talking about who they're going to vote for, say, <laughs> just pulling an example out of the air, mm. who they're going <laughs> to vote for in their elections. And we just have reached the point where the identity of one of the major parties of the United States has become attached to climate denial, which is, which is insane. So as climate voters, we have to, we have to show up in mass. Have you heard of the um, environmental voter project? So they found out that people who are very concerned, self-identified, very concerned about the environment vote at lower than average rates. So they have been targeting that group of people specifically getting them out to vote. So we, we have the power to make a difference in, in voting. And I, you know, when we hear that people, you know, in these major elections that we have relatively low voting rates, I feel like if everybody who was concerned showed up and just voted for the closest climate person, they could, you know, whoever's the most aggressive on climate all the way down the ticket, then we can start making a real difference. And you can see that, actually. So. I do want to get back to the discussion of what happens next and what to do, but I also don't think that it's only climate deniers who don't see the immediate connection or don't immediately understand the connection between climate change and cataclysmic fires in, in the United States West Coast. So let's do a little bit of connecting the dots, if you wouldn't mind. August's fire siege was sparked by a lightning strike or a lightning storm which was a very unusual storm for Northern California. And extreme weather attribution studies have found that climate change exacerbates heat waves, which help create the conditions for wildfires to burn intensely and to spread really fast. Uh, the heat waves leave us with dry vegetation, which provides excellent fuel for fires. Do you want to flesh that out a little bit more? Um, is there more? Yeah. Do you want to make more connections? Especially in California, you, you have longer hotter seasons, but they are also drier. So the the winds that are coming, the offshore winds that are coming from the the hot inner part of the state, they are fiercer because of the higher temperatures that are happening in our Central Valley. So as those temperatures increase, the difference between the coastal temperatures, you know, from our oceans, which, which are still pretty cold, as you know, in the North Coast. <laughs> um, so that differential drives stronger winds. And then the fact that the, um, the Central Valley is hotter means that they end up being drier. So they're coming into longer seasons of that level of heat. So our rainy season has just, you know, diminished in California. So I'm I was born a long time ago, and it used to rain really from October all the way through January. You know, it was pretty rainy. You know, so we we definitely had longer periods of rainfall, 
and uh, you know, and then it was more temperate around here in particular. For we just didn't have the, we just didn't have as long periods with super dry hot weather, mm-hmm. and then we the ferocity of these winds has just increased. So, um, and the winds contribute to the spread of wildfires. The winds are catastrophic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they are they're catastrophic in a number of different ways. So the minute you have any kind of a an incident, then they're just going to move the fire very quickly. Yep. Uh, and then if you, it, as they drive the ferocity of these storms, then the fire system itself creates its own weather. So I, I live in Santa Rosa and three years ago, of course, you know, we, we had a terrible um, fire here that just raced through. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the phrase fire tornado. You know, and I work in the industry. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, I look at this stuff all the time. And uh, if you had seen the hop, skip, and jump pattern of this fire and how far um, the space was between flare-ups, I mean, this is what happened. When we actually went to look at it, we kind of bolstered our courage to go see. And um, jaw-dropping. Like, it was three or four blocks of, you know, a flare up and then a whole neighborhood that was just taken, taken down. So it was throwing, it was a fire tornado throwing chunks of burning material very, very far. So the winds are catastrophic and, you know, these lightning storms occurred in a very, you know, dry environment. And now we have the winds popping up. So, The lightning storms were not, thank God, not accompanied by the huge winds. So now we are, that's what all these red flag warnings are about right now, are these winds mm-hmm. coming up. And I think those, that wind, those wind patterns are now, once again, they're early in the season. We'll get back to this conversation with Laura Niche in just a moment. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. KSFP and the San Francisco Public Press are supported by listeners like you. Learn more about our membership program and join the public press at sfpublicpress.org donate. You can make a donation online or send a check to the San Francisco Public Press, 44 Page Street, Suite 504, San Francisco, California, 94102. Thank you, and thanks to the hundreds of other public press members who have made our work possible for 10 years. Let's hear more from Laura Niche with 350 Bay Area about wildfires and climate change. I want to acknowledge that there is a huge impact on people right now of these fires. And we're talking about it because today in the Bay Area, people were surprised to wake up and find that it looked like it was still dark outside. And I've seen some, I think, justified frustration with Bay Area media covering the darkened sky from the smoke without covering the actual fires that are threatening people's homes and lives. You know, thousands of homes are being threatened with total obliteration by these fires. But there is also the sense to me that when the sky goes dark in huge metropolitan areas that aren't affected by evacuations right now, it sort of prompts us to recognize that this is happening. What's your sense? Do you think it it makes sense to see smoke eclipses as a wake-up call to use them as inflection points in places where we aren't being directly threatened? Well, people can see with their own eyes what's going on. Right. 
And the threat of the darkened skies is actually really real and has serious health impacts. So all the smoke that's in the air, um, in particular the the fine particulate matter, mm-hmm. is it has really very serious health impacts. So the the little it, the big stuff that you can smell, the stuff that says, "Oh, there's a fire nearby," is actually less deadly than some of the stuff that doesn't smell as badly. Um, so fine particulate matter can enter your bloodstream, and it can make all of your existing health any health issues worse, you know, partly you know, because it just, it just causes inflammation throughout your body. And so if you have heart disease or lung issues or sinus problems, it makes all of those things worse. There have been several studies done where they could track the uh, wildfire smoke and then the increase in hospital visits and stuff like that. And now while we're in the middle of a pandemic, anything that's, that it weakens your lungs or impacts your lungs in any way, it just makes you more susceptible to worse outcomes for COVID. I mean, this is really a collision of catastrophes that we were sort of warned about, and nobody wants to live through this again. I think it's good. I, I also think that, I mean, can they do both, right? Right. I think that serious journalistic coverage right now involves looking at the immediate and terrifying impacts of these fires that are racing through. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to tell you a quick story. Um, My daughter was up visiting a family friend uh, just north of Ashland. So you know where this story is going. (laughs) Mm. So she left yesterday at 11 a.m. And and at 4 p.m., the cops knocked on our family friend's door. And she left with her keys in her purse. That was it. And that's wow. it. She's done. It's it's over. Just everything got burned. Mm. So I think those stories tug at our heartstrings in a very particular way, but they can also be a little bit overwhelming. And even if we're not in the path of an immediate fire, I think we all need to be aware that the the impacts of the smoke are also real. When, when I go venture forth and see people like literally dining outside here, <laughs> I think I want to yell at them, put your masks on, you know, your, you know, your, your fine particulate matter masks, because it's, it is the, the damage from fine particulate matter is cumulative and there's really no safe level of exposure. Like let that sink in. So it's a, it's a pretty big double whammy, but we have just seen you know, journalists are really struggling with this stuff. And they're not, do- overall, they're not doing a good job. Like very, very few of the um, the major news outlets are directly connecting these fires to climate change. I mean, they're being awfully cautious, given, given the fact that we've only got a few years, really, to start turning this thing completely around. So, and I will, you know, again, the good news, <laughs> the good news is, that there is a path forward if we do start getting serious about doing this. You know, Governor Newsom is out there saying, oh, it's climate change, it's climate change. And Mm -hmm. he's still letting permits for new drilling applications just go through thousands of them. Like, we we have to stop bringing this stuff out of the ground. We have to... Well, let's 
Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk more about that because you've pointed out that one of the things enabling that and continuing that is the finance sector. Yeah. Financial institutions have provided more than $700 billion in financing to the fossil fuel industry just since the Paris Accord was signed, as well as $44 billion to activities that cause deforestation. Investments are also keeping fracking going. My question about this and what you've pointed out is these things don't actually seem to turn a profit. So what is going on there? Well, I mean, the fracking stuff is what's really just bleeding money like crazy. So, Mm. um, you know, without going too deeply into it, it does seem some other people have pointed this out, that the only people it's sort of this self-perpetuating cycle where the only people really making money are the people financing them because it's debt financing. So they're getting, you know, they're just getting a payback on the debt. So, I mean, it doesn't seem like enough money to really justify what's going on here, but it might also be that the first person to pull out is the only winner. Like once you pull, it's like Jenga, like once you pull one of these major blocks out, Mm. the whole thing's going to come down. So there might be a certain amount of, trepidation there but the one that just blows my mind is the is the um insurance industry like (laughs) why haven't they figured out that man this is can you can you explain what you mean by that what role does the insurance industry play here well the insurance industry is making it possible for the pipelines and the fracking and things like that so you can't move forward with these projects without the money to financing to finance them, but also without a boatload of insurance mm-hmm. because uh, pipelines leak. Every single one leaks and you have to have insurance to cover catastrophic losses. So, And you cannot get the financing without the insurance. You would think that the insurance companies, when they're just looking at it from a strict mathematical point of view and doing the underwriting, that they would say, wow, we can't, you know, we're funding those activities that are increasing our liabilities Uh, incredibly. So every really super major hurricane hits, it impacts a whole lot of individual lives. And those are the most important things. But also the insurance industry takes a hit and the reinsurance industry takes a hit. So if you look at the amount of damage going on up and down the West Coast of the United States, once you get through the tragedy of it, I'm not trying to make light of the human level tragedy. It's a huge financial blow to the insurance industry after year after year of that same thing happening. So, I mean, you how many times have you heard unprecedented right. in, in the last couple of years? I mean, it's beginning to sink in. And yet there's still all of this investment in industries that drive climate change. I mean, how, yeah. how do you explain that and what do you do about it? Well, the power, what do we do about it is we organize and we vote and we're just, we're just, you know, it's hard. <laughs> it feels, sometimes it feels like World War One. you know, it's like you, you're in the trenches fighting and you're, you gain a foot. However, so the reason that 350 Bay Area works on all of these kinds of changes is number one, we're trying to build the political will to get bigger change to happen. But the smaller changes that happen are really part of two things. So it's like building the foundation for the bigger things to happen, but they also are like dominoes. So let me just give you an example. Um, Santa Rosa was one of the cities recently to pass a new building ordinance requiring all electric uh, construction for low-rise residential new buildings 
So, see, that's, it's like a teeny weeny little thing you say. Yes, it is. <laughs> it is. And there are about 30 other cities throughout this, this state that have managed to get these passed. And it's, and it's a big deal. However, the bigger deal is we're pushing the California Energy Commission to build it into the next state level code release. So, um, and that'll be in a couple of years that all new construction be all electric to one degree or another. Like there's, there's fine tuning and stuff like this, but mostly, you know, all electric. And the only reason they're talking about it is because of this action that's been happening in the city by city level. Because a year ago, when I was going deep to figuring out when, where the, where this was on the roadmap for the energy commission, it was not on the roadmap. They weren't talking about it. So now it's not only on the roadmap, but there's going to be some level of it in the next code release in a couple of years. And then all of a sudden you have real leverage. So, and why that's important is California, still the fifth largest economy in the world, that California is passing these things, creates the markets for the technologies to get adopted worldwide. So right now, the technologies that can make this happen in a super efficient way are still more expensive than the old technologies. That's just a matter of scale. So then when the California market becomes available and open, then it drives costs down. Just if you look at the, like, look at the cost of solar coming down so crazy fast in the last 10 years. So the same thing will happen with these other technologies. So that's why, part of the reason why we're hopeful and why we do this work every day, even when we wake up, you know, to this crazy apocalypse, <laughs> you know, it's depressing. My daughter said, why are you working? And I'm like, because I have to, <laughs> for sanity. I'm like, what else am I going to do? Curl up in a ball and cry? <laughs> like, no. Well, yeah, I mean... Can we talk about that? Because that's kind of my inclination sometimes. <laughs> and instead, you know, I'm having conversations with people like you about what what to make of this and what do we do? So, like, I guess I'm asking you, how, how do you fight that sort of sense of helplessness when things get overwhelming like this? I work with an extraordinary team of people. So 350 Bay Area started building a paid staff and putting the team together to support, you know, a, a pretty big number of volunteers that work for free. So we probably have like 30 to 40 people working at least 40 hours a week on this for free as volunteers. Most of them retired professionals bringing with them uh, a lot of expertise in these areas. So we have people going deep, very deep in stuff that would instantly put you to sleep for rulemakings at the Public Utilities Commission. <laughs> and they're making, like these individual people supported by a very small staff are making a huge difference. So one of the things that we were able to get done at the Public Utilities Commission was we're working on changing the analysis, like the, the math that goes behind uh, project by project decisions, because that math had been sort of developed with the big utilities and they sort of ended up favoring the big utilities because they mirrored the way they thought about things. So, so changing that then starts leveling the playing field to create more distributed energy that is, ends up being more resilient and provides more local jobs. So it's not that one of those things is necessarily going to prevail or be much, much better than the other, but the grid of the future is a blend of those things for sure. And this local cleaner energy delivered through the community choice providers 
is a big win for the climate. So, um, so anyway, to answer your question, these people inspire me and it's a really great team and not just dedicated, but we are all kind of, we're big climate nerds and we enjoy each other's company and we're doing great work. So that's it. Otherwise I would be in bed in a ball. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being able to talk with me about this and have this wide-ranging conversation sparked by yet another round of Megafires. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you, and thank you for doing this. I mean, all of this, uh, these conversations make a difference. They really do. So you can, you can be very proud of that. <laughs> that was Laura Nish, Executive Director of 350 Bay Area and 350 Bay Area Action. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press. Host and reporter, Laura Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks for listening. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.